Good morning. So this is another reading of The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work by John Gottman, PhD, and Nan Silver. I hope you enjoy it. I'm going to read chapter three, and the title is How I Predict Divorce, and this is from John Gottman's video. Uh, so hope uh, hope you enjoy it. Chapter 3. How I Predict Divorce Dara and Oliver sit face-to-face in the love lab, both in their late 20s. They have volunteered to take part in my study of newlyweds. In this extensive research, 130 couples have agreed to put their marriages not only under the microscope, but in front of the camera as well. Dara and Oliver are among the 50 who are observed during an overnight stay at the Love Lab, quote-unquote, apartment. Dara and Oliver say their lives are hectic but happy. She attends nursing school at night, and he works long hours as a software engineer. Like many couples, including those who remain content as well as those who eventually divorce, Dara and Oliver acknowledge that their marriage isn't perfect, but they say they love each other, and are committed to staying together. They positively beam when they talk about the life they plan to build. I asked them to spend 15 minutes in the lab trying to resolve an ongoing disagreement they are having while I videotape them. As they speak, sensors attached to their body gauges their stress levels based on various measurements of their circulatory system, such as how quickly their heart beats. I expect that their decision will be at least somewhat negative. After all, I have asked them to quarrel. While some couples are capable of resolving disagreements with understanding words and smiles, more often there's tension. Dara and Oliver are no exception. Dara thinks Oliver doesn't do his share of the housekeeping, and he thinks she nags him too much, which makes him less motivated to do more. After listening to them talk about these problem, this problem, I sadly predict to my colleagues that Dara and Oliver, who will see their marital happiness dwindle. <clears throat> and sure enough, four years later, they report they are on the verge of divorce. Although they still live together, they are leading lonely lives. They have both become ghosts haunting the marriage that once made them both feel alive. I predict their marriage will falter, not because they argue, after all, I asked them to. Anger between husband and wife doesn't itself predict marital meltdown. Other couples in the newlywed study argue far more during their 15 minutes of videotaping than do Dara and Oliver. Yet I predict that many of these couples will remain happily married, and they do. The clues to Dara and Oliver's future breakup are in the way they argue, which leaves them vulnerable to increasing negativity and distrust. The first sign, harsh startup. The most obvious indicator that this decision and this marriage is not going to go well 
is the way it begins. Dara immediately becomes negative and accusatory. When Oliver broaches the subject of housework, she's ready to be sarcastic. Quote, unquote, or lack thereof. She says, Oliver tries to lighten things up by cracking a joke. Or the book we were talking about, writing, Men Are Pigs, quote, unquote. Dara sits poker-faced. They talk a little bit more, trying to devise a plan to make sure Oliver does his share. And then Dara says, I mean, I'd like to see it resolved, but it doesn't seem like it is. I mean, I've tried making up a list, and that doesn't work. And I've tried letting you do it on your own, and nothing got done for a month. Now she's blaming Oliver. In essence, she's saying the problem isn't housekeeping. It's him. Dara may have legitimate reasons to feel deep frustration toward her husband, but the way she expresses herself will be a major roadblock in resolving their differences. When a discussion leads off this way with criticism and or sarcasm, which is a form of contempt, it has begun with a harsh startup. Although Dara talks to Oliver in a soft, very soft, quiet voice, there's a load of negative power in her words. After hearing the first minute or so of their conversation, it's no surprise to me that by the end of but that by the end, Dara and Oliver haven't resolved their differences at all. The research shows that if your discussion begins with a harsh startup, it will inevitably end on a negative note, even if there are a lot of attempts to make nice in between. Statistics tell the story. 96% of the time you can predict the outcome of a conversation based on the first three minutes of the 15-minute interaction, a harsh startup simply dooms you to failure. So if you begin a discussion that way, you might as well pull the plug and take a breather and start over. The second sign. The Four Horsemen. Dara's harsh startup sounds the warning bell that she and Oliver may be having serious, serious difficulty. Now, as the discussion unfolds, I continue to look out for particular types of negative interactions, certain kinds of negativity, if allowed to run rampant, are so lethal to a relationship that I call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Usually, these four horsemen clip-clop into the heart of a marriage in the following order. Criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. So we're going to get into this on the next excerpt. Um, stand by. Horseman number one. Criticism. You will always have some complaints about the person you live with. But there's a world of difference between complaint and criticism. A complaint focuses on a specific behavior or event. Quote, I'm really angry that you didn't sweep the kitchen last night. We agreed that we take turns. Could you please do it now? End quote. Is a complaint. Like many complaints, it has three parts. Number one, here's how I feel. Parentheses, quote, I'm really angry. End quote. Number two, about a very specific situation. 
quote, you didn't sweep last night, end quote. Number three, and here's what I need, slash want, slash prefer. Quote, could you do it now? In contrast, a criticism is global and expresses negative feelings or opinions about the other's character or personality. Why are you so forgetful? I hate having to always sweep the kitchen floor when it's your turn. You just don't care. Statements that contain complaints are are soft startups, while those that criticize are harsh startups. Two very common forms of criticism are statements that contain, quote, you always, or, quote, you never. But you can turn any complaint into a criticism just by inserting my favorite line. What is wrong with you? You can see how quickly Dara's complaint turns into criticism and a harsh startup. In this snippet of her conversation with Oliver, Dara, I mean, I'd like to see it resolved, but it doesn't seem like it is. Simple complaint. I mean, I've tried making up a list and that doesn't work and I've tried letting you do it on your own and nothing got done for a month. Criticism. She's implying the problem is his fault. Even if it is, blaming him will only make it worse. Here are some simple examples that show the difference between complaint and criticism. A complaint. There's no gas in the car. I'm upset that you didn't fill it up like I said you like you said you would. Can you please deal with it tomorrow? Criticism. Why can you ever remember anything? I told you a thousand times to fill up the tank and you didn't. You're always so careless. Complaint. I wish you had told me earlier that you're too tired to make love. I'm really disappointed, and I feel a little embarrassed. Please, just let me know when you're not in the mood for sex. I really am fine with a no. Criticism. Why are you always so cold and selfish? It was really nasty of you to lead me on. What is your problem? Are you frigid? Complaint. I need you to check with me before inviting anyone over for dinner. I wanted to spend time alone with you tonight. I want us to schedule a romantic evening this week. Criticism. Why do you keep putting your friends ahead of me? I always come last on your list. Are you avoiding spending time with me? If you hear echoes of yourself or your spouse in these criticisms, you have plenty of company. The first horseman is very common in relationships. So if you find that you and your spouse are critical of each other, don't assume you're headed for divorce court. The problem with criticism is that when it becomes very frequent, it paves the way for other far deadlier horsemen. Horseman number two, contempt. The second horseman arises from a sense of superiority over one's partner. It is a form of disrespect. Its arrival is hurled when Dara literally sneers at her husband's suggestion that they keep a list of his chores on the refrigerator to help him remember. She says, do you think you work really well with lists? Next, Oliver tells her that he needs 15 minutes to relax when he gets home before starting to do chores. So if I leave you alone for 15 minutes, then 
You think you'll be motivated to jump up and do something? She asks him, still sneering. Uh, maybe. We haven't tried it, have we? Oliver asks. Dara has an opportunity here to soften up, but instead she comes back with sarcasm. I think you do a pretty good job of coming home and lying around or disappearing into the bathroom, she says. And then she asks, challengingly, so you think that the cure-all is to give you 15 minutes? Dara's sarcasm and cynicism are types of contempt. So are name-calling, eye-rolling, mockery, and hostile humor. In whatever form contempt is poisonous to a relationship because it conveys disgust, it's virtually impossible to resolve a problem when your partner is getting the message you're disgusted with him or her. Inevitably, contempt leads to more conflict rather to uh, reconciliation. Peter was a master at contempt, at, la at least when it came to his wife. Listen to what happens when he and Cynthia try to discuss their conflict, their conflicting views about spending money. He says, just look at the difference in our vehicles and our clothes. I think that says a lot for who we are and what we value. I mean, you tease me about washing my truck and you go and pay to have someone wash your car. We're paying through the nose of your car and you can't be bothered to wash it. I think that's outrageous. I think that's probably the most spoiled thing that you do. This is a textbook example of contempt. He's not merely pointing out that they are spend that they spend their money differently. He's accusing his wife of a moral deficiency of being spoiled. Cynthia responds by telling him that it's physically difficult for her to wash her car herself. And Peter dismisses his explanation and continues to take the high moral ground. I take care of my truck because if I can take care of it, it lasts longer. I don't come from the mentality of, ah, just go out and buy a new one that you seem to. Still hoping to get Peter on her side, Cynthia says, if you could help me wash my car, I'd really love that. I'd really appreciate it. But instead of grabbing his chance of reconciliation, Peter wants to do battle. How many times have you helped me wash my truck? He counters. Cynthia tries again to reconcile. I will help you wash your truck if you will help me wash my car. Peter's goal is to not resolve this issue, but to dress her down. So he responds, that's not my question. How many times have you helped me? Never, says Cynthia. See, says Peter. That's where I think you have a little responsibility too. It's like, you know, if your daddy bought you a house, would you expect him to come over and paint it for you too? Well, will you always keep, help me wash my car if I always help you wash your truck? I'm not sure that I want to help you, that you want to help me, Peter says, laughing. Well, will you always help me wash my car then? Cynthia asks. I will help you when I can. I won't give you a blanket guarantee for life. What are you going to do? Sue me? Asks Peter. And then he laughs. <laughs> Listening to this discussion, it becomes clear that Peter's main purpose is to demean his wife. His contempt comes in the guise of assuming the high moral ground. And when he says, 
I think that says a lot for who we are and what we value. Or I don't come from the mentality of just go out and buy a new one. There's a quote. Couples who are contemptuous of each other are more likely to suffer from infectious illness, colds, flu, and so on than other people. Contempt is fueled by long-simmering negative thoughts about your partner. You're more likely to have such thoughts if your differences are not resolved. No doubt, the first time Peter and Cynthia argued about car washing, he wasn't so disrespectful. He probably offered a simple complaint like, I think you should wash your car. I think you should wash your own car. It costs too much to always have someone else wash it. But as they kept disagreeing about this, his complaint turned into global criticism, such as you always spend too much money. And when the conflict continued, he felt more and more disgusted and fed up with Cynthia, a change that affected what he said when they argued. Belligerence, a close cousin of contempt. It is just, a deadly to, is just as deadly to a relationship. It is a form of aggressive anger because it contains threat or provocation. When a wife complains that her husband doesn't come home from work in time for dinner, a belligerent response would be, well, what are you going to do about it? When Peter says to Cynthia, what are you going to do, sue me? He thinks he's making a joke, but he's really being belligerent. The third horseman, defensiveness. It's no surprise, considering how nasty her husband is being, that Cynthia defends herself. She points out that she doesn't get her car washed as often as she thinks. She explains that it's more difficult physically for her to wash her car herself than it is for him to wash his truck. Although it's understandable that Cynthia would defend herself, Research shows that his approach rarely has the desired effect. An attacking spouse does not back down or apologize. This is because defensiveness is really a way of blaming your partner. You're saying, in effect, the problem isn't me, it's you. One common form of defensiveness is the innocent victim stance, which often entails whining or send the message. Why are you picking on me? What about all the good things I've done? There's no pleasing you. Defensiveness is in all its guises just ex escalates the conflict, which is why it's so deadly. When Cynthia tells Peter how hard it is for her to wash her car, he doesn't say, oh, now I understand. He ignores her excuse. He doesn't even acknowledge what she said. He climbs further up his high moral ground, telling her how well he takes care of his vehicle and implying that she's spoiled for not doing the same. Cynthia can't win, and neither can their marriage. Criticism, contempt, and defensiveness don't always gallop into a home in strict order. They function more like a relay match, handing the baton off to each other over and over again if the couple can't put a stop to it. You can see this happening as Oliver and Dara continue their discussion about cleaning their house. Although they seem to be seeking a solution, Dara becomes increasingly contemptuous, mocking Oliver in disguise, in disguise of questioning him and tearing down every plate he devises. 
the more defensiveness he becomes, the more she attacks him. Her body language signals condensation. Condensation. She speaks softly, her elbows resting on a table, her interwined fingers cradling her chin like a law professor or a judge. She peppers him with the questions just to see him squirm. Dara says, so you think that that's cruel, that's the cruel, that's the cure all to give you 15 minutes? Sneering. Oliver, no, I don't think that's cure all at all. I think combined with writing up a list of weekly tasks to have it get done, why not put a calendar on the fridge? Hey, I'll listen, I'll see it right then and there. Dara, just like when you input to-do lists, lists on your phone, it gets done? Mocking him. Oliver, I don't have the chance to look at a list during a day, but at home... So, you think you'll look at a calendar then? Yeah, at, at any point in time, if I'm not up to speed, you should ask me about it. But when that happens now, it's not you asking, it's you telling me. You haven't done this and you haven't done that. Instead say, is there any reason why you haven't done this or that? Like, I mean, when I stayed up and did your resume that one night, stuff like that happens all the time. And you don't take that into account at all. Defensive. And I don't just all of a sudden do things for you either. Defensive. No, you do. I think you need to relax a little bit. Sarcastic. Hmm. Well, that sounds like we solved a lot. Obviously, Dara and Oliver have, re un have resolved nothing. Thanks to the prevalence of criticism, contempt, and defensiveness. The fourth horseman. Stonewalling. In marriages where discussions begin with harsh startups where criticism and contempt lead to defensiveness and vice versa. Eventually, one partner turns out. This trumpets the arrival of the fourth horseman. Think of a husband who comes home from work, gets met with a barrage of criticism from his stay-at-home wife and responds by turning on the TV. The less responsive he is, the more she yells. Eventually, he gets up and leaves the room. Rather than confronting his wife, he disengages. By turning away from her, he is avoiding a fight, but he is also avoiding his marriage. He has become a stonewaller. Although both husband and wife can stonewall, research indicates that this behavior is far more common among men in all kinds of marriages, for reasons we'll see later. During a typical conversation between two people, the listener gives plenty of cues to the speaker that he's paying attention. He may use eye contact, nod his head, and something like, yeah, uh, or uh-huh. But a stonewaller doesn't give this sort of casual feedback. He tends to look away or down without uttering a sound. He sits like an impassive stone wall. The stonewaller acts as though he, could ca he couldn't care less about what you're saying, even if he hears it. Stonewalling usually arrives later in the course of a marriage than the other three horsemen. That's why it's less common among newlywed husbands, such as Oliver, than among couples who have been in a negative spiral for a while. It takes time for the negative created, the negativity created by the first three horsemen to become overwhelming enough that stonewalling becomes an understandable out. 
That's the stance that Mac takes when he and his wife, Rita, argue about each other's behavior at parties. She says the problem is that he drinks too much. He thinks the bigger problem is her reaction, and she embarrasses him in front of his friends. Here they are, already in the middle of an argument. Rita. Now I've become the problem? Again, I started off with the complaint, but now I'm the problem. That always seems to happen, huh? Mac. Yeah, I do that. I do. I know. But your tantrums and childish uh, are an embarrassment to me and my friends. Rita. If you would control your drinking at parties, please. Mac looks down, avoids eye contact, says nothing. He's stonewalling. Rita. Because I think, for the most part, we get along pretty well. Really. <laughs> Mac continues to stonewall, remains silent, makes no eye contact, head nods, facial movements, or vocalations. Rita. Don't you think? Mac, no response. Rita. Mac, hello. The third sign, flooding. It may seem Rita that her criticism... It may seem to Rita that her criticism and contempt of no effect on Mac. But nothing could be further from the truth. Usually people stonewall as a protection against feelings psychologically and physically overwhelmed. A sensation we call flooding. It occurs when your spouse negativity, negativity when your spouse's negativity is so intense and sudden that it leaves you shell-shocked. You feel so defenseless against this sniper attack that you learn to do anything to avoid a reply. The more often you feel flooded by your spouse's criticism or contempt, the more hypervigilant you are for cues that your spouse is about to blow again. That's why all Mac can think about is protecting himself from how awful Rita's onslaught makes him feel. And the way he does that is to disengage emotionally from the relationship. Sadly, Mac and Rita are now divorced. Another husband, Paul, has quite, has quiet, was quite upfront about why he stonewalls his wife. Amy gets negative. In the following discussion, he articulates what all stonewallers are feeling. Amy, when I get mad, that's when you should step in and try to make it better. But when you just stop talking, it means I no longer care about how you feel. That just makes me feel one inch tall. Like in my opinion or feelings have no absolutely bearing on you. And, that, and that's not the way a marriage should be. Paul, what I'm saying is if you want to have a serious conversation, you're going to have to do it without yelling and screaming all the time. You start saying things that are hurtful. Amy, well, when I'm hurt, mad, and I want to hurt you, I start saying things. And that's when we should both stop. I should say, I'm sorry. And you should say, I know what you want to talk about. And I really want to make the effort to talk instead of just ignoring you. Paul, I'll talk then. Amy, it fits your purpose. No, no, no. When you're not yelling and screaming and jumping up and down, stomping. Amy kept telling Paul how it made her feel when he shuts down. But... She did not seem to hear him tell her why he shuts down. He can't handle her hostility. This couple also divorced. A marriage meltdown can be predicted. 
than by habitual harsh startups and frequent flooding brought on by relentlessness presence of the four horsemen during disagreements. Although each of these factors alone can predict a divorce, they usually coexist in an unhappy marriage. There's a fourth sign. Body language. Even if I could not hear the conversation between Mac, the Stonewaller, and his wife, Rita, I would be able to predict their divorce simply by looking at his psychological readings. When we monitor couples for body changes during a tense discussion, we can see just how physically distressing flooding is. One of the most apparent of these physical reactions is that the heart speeds up, pounding away at more than 100 beats per minute, even as high as 165. In contrast, a typical heart rate for a man who is about 30 to 76, about 30 is 76, and for a woman the same age, 82. Hormonal changes occur too, including the secretion of adrenaline, which kicks in the fight or flight response. Blood pressure also mounts. These changes are so dramatic that if one partner is frequently flooded during marital discussions, it's easy to predict that Unless the dynamic between them changes, they will end up divorced. Recurring episodes of flooding lead to divorce for two reasons. First, they signal that at least one partner feels severe emotional distress when dealing with another. Second, the physical sensation of feeling flooded, the increased heart rate, sweating, and so on, make it virtually impossible to have a productive problem-solving discussion. When your body goes into overdrive during an argument, it is responding to a very primitive alarm system we inherited from our prehistoric ancestors. All those distressful reactions, like a pounding heart and sweating, occurs because on a fundamental level, your body perceives your current situation as dangerous. Even though we live in an age of in vitro conception, organ transplants, and gene mapping from an evolutionary standpoint, not much time has passed since we were cave dwellers. So the human body has not refined its fear reaction and response. The same way, whether you're facing a saber-toothed tiger or a contemptuous spouse demanding to know why you can never remember to put the toilet seat down. When a pounding heart and all the other physical stress reactions happen in the middle, in the midst of a discussion with your mate, the, con- the consequences are distra- disastrous. Your ability to process information is reduced, meaning it's harder to pay attention to what your partner is saying. Creative problem solving and your sense of humor go out the window. You're left with the most reflective, with the most reflexive, least intellectually sophisticated responses in your response to fight, act critical, contemptuous, or defensive, or flee, stonewall. Any chance of resolving the issue is gone. Most likely, the discussion will just worsen the situation. So, a reflection on the chapter I just read. Um, There's still a little bit more to that chapter, but I'm running out of time. 
I am in a position in my marriage where um, I'm trying to gain trust, not only for her, but for myself, because we have been going through a difficult situation, um, not to get too personal, but there are powers that be that are distractions to having our marriage, the communication, uh, strong. And that's where I am, where I'm trying to not get anxious because I am suffering inside and I just can't let go of certain things. So according to my therapist, I need to implant positive thoughts when I start to get negative thoughts. I can't get comfortable in the negative thoughts or in the unfaithfulness of our marriage. Unfortunately, in my security, I become comfortable. And that's a problem. So, with that being said, that's just my thought on these four horsemen, the criticism, contempt, the stonewalling. It's just not it's just not right. And I got to move forward. We have to move forward. Because tomorrow's not promised to anybody. So I'll be on soon. Take care.